So we are today in the last chapter of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you're using the black Bibles that are provided for you, it is on page 326. Uh, We have some new uh, black Bibles. Some of you who are more in my age range uh, will be grateful for those Bibles. Uh, They are much easier to read for us old folk, Uh, but uh, we're grateful to have those. And um, kids, if you're looking for like a real easy way to help uh, with cleanup, grab like maybe two or three Bibles at a time. Don't take too many because we want them to stay nice. And there's a bookshelf right over there uh, at the back. If you just put those Bibles on that bookshelf, that would be great. Adults, you're allowed to do this too. There's no size limit to who's allowed to help clean up and prepare for New Life Community. But here we are. We're in the end of... 2 Samuel 24, Um, depending on how you count it, uh, you might say that we began this series back in March of 2019, because in March of 2019, we began looking at 1 Samuel. And in the Hebrew Bible, as I've told you a few times, 1 and 2 Samuel are just one book, which then caused me to start thinking like, man, time is so weird, isn't it? Like, at first, like, we think, well, yeah, I remember when we were in First Samuel. That wasn't very long ago. But understand this. When we started First Samuel, my youngest daughter was a senior in high school. And so now we are finishing Second Samuel, and in seven months, she'll be married. So that's what time does when you're old, Like, things feel like they were just yesterday, and then you realize, oh, that was a long time ago. I saw a a Facebook post that said, friends don't tell friends that 1980 was 41 years ago. (laughs) Because everyone old enough to remember 1980 is like, shut up. (laughs) So, that's where we are. But that's what time does. Even when you look at the uh, Old and New Testament, it's hard for us to get a grasp, isn't it, of like timelines and time distances. Uh, So David, we're finishing up David's reign here uh, in 2 Samuel. And all along, we've been looking at how David points us forward to Christ and how Jesus is David's son, yet David's Lord, and even the promise to David that he would have a son one day who would sit on his throne. And, And we look at it in the Bible and we're like, well, yeah, that's only from about there to there. That's not horrible. But then you realize that's a thousand years. That promise to David would be fulfilled a thousand years later. And so to put that into some sort of perspective for us, the United States would have to exist four times over to get to a thousand years. Like go back to the declaration and we're about 250 years in. We have to do this four more times to get the length of time between the promise to David and the fulfillment of that promise. And so it just, this isn't really a much of an introduction to 2 Samuel 24, I know. These are just things that like struck me this week as I was preparing because like, like we just think like God has such, like he's got to do things in such a certain amount of time or else how can we know if his promises are true? And it's like a thousand years I don't even want to like, I mean, some of you probably, you have numbers in your heads flying around all the time. You probably already know how many generations of people that is. That's so many people. That's so many generations. And yet God is faithful. 
We don't need to force God to do things according to our timing in order to trust Him. So anyway, again, not much of an introduction. Here we are, we're at sort of the end of David's reign. Not really the end of his reign, because that's going to come in 1 Kings, so you'll want to maybe this week read ahead into 1 Kings so you can see how David moves into Solomon. Even that's not a very smooth transition. But as we read this last chapter, it just seems like a strange way to end 2 Samuel. I mean, it's obviously intentional because this isn't the last thing that happens in David's reign. We don't know when this happened in David's reign. It's just something that had happened at some point when David was king. And here, the author of Samuel is putting it as the last thing he wants you to take away from this book. And it's sort of a letdown. It's sort of, oh, here's another time when it seems like David messed things up again. And so why? Why end with this passage? We read this passage and it confronts us. It confronts some of our misgivings about God. Like there are things that we read in this passage and we don't like what it says. And there are things that we read in this passage and it makes us concerned and it reveals to us what we think about who God is and what we think about who we think God ought to be. But then we also read this passage and we realize it ends with this picture of atonement and the cost of atonement, that atonement for sin is never free, and we need to remember that. So let's stand up for the reading of God's Word, 2 Samuel 24. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Eror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah and Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem. And at the end of nine months and twenty days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, 
Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months from before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will, off, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So again, we don't really have a timeline. We don't know when this happened in David's reign. Uh, but really, it's not all that important. It's not crucial to know when in David's reign this occurred. We can still glean from it lessons, and especially if it wasn't at the end of his reign, we can ask ourselves, why, why put it here? Why put this as the last thing in the book of Samuel? We do know that it's a long story, not long in like reading, but did you notice it? this whole thing takes almost a year to unfold? It takes almost 10 months just 
to collect the information for the census. But before we get nine months in, we have questions that we have to answer, or at least that we have to admit that we're asking. It starts in verse 1, telling us that, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That's an important part that we sometimes kind of skip over. Uh, It's not that Israel, even though David incorrectly assumes, it's not that Israel is being punished for something David has done. It starts telling us Israel has done something. There's something that Israel has done that has kindled the anger of the Lord. We're not told what that is. We have no idea what that is. We know through this passage that how God intends to uh, not punish in an eternal sense, but how God intends to correct or bring consequences onto Israel is through David and his, his seeking of this census. We don't know what kindled God's anger. In fact, we're confused because it tells us that because of this, God incited David against them. It's God, at least according to 2 Samuel here, who has caused David to desire a census that then God is upset over. But we have to remember the first sentence. His anger is toward Israel already. And we don't know what that's over, do we? And we may never know. In the words of of Aslan, that's their story. It's not your story. Maybe you don't need to know that. Uh, We do know some of Israel's history, don't we? We were not shocked, are we, that Israel would kindle God's anger? We were not shocked that this nation would like all of a sudden do something and, and maybe, maybe God never even told him what he'd be upset over. And No. We're pretty sure that this is pretty standard. This is a pretty normal way for God's people to act. I'm sure it wasn't something that he has hidden from them and now, surprise, that's against the rules. Now, he has pretty much shown that he's pretty clear on what it looks like to follow God, to trust God. And the nation has shown, pretty much up to this point, they're really bad at that. And so it's not unusual for, their, for God's anger to be kindled against them. But that doesn't bother us so much. What bothers us is that we're told that, and so he incited David against them. Now in First Chronicles, when, when the writer of the Chronicles tells us this, he, he sort of lessens the blow. He tells us in this exact same story that Satan incited David against Israel. And so at first we think, well, I, I kind of like that one better. I like, I like, that, I like that journalist. He, I, I feel like he's being a little more honest. So, but does that really help us at all? Like that only helps you if you have a misunderstanding of who Satan is, doesn't it? Like remember, Satan is a created being. He's not the yin to God's yang. He is certainly not the evil twin brother of Jesus Christ. Satan is a created, fallen being who has no power any more than the rest of us do, but the power that God gives him. Well, you see that most clearly in Job 
in chapter 2. So you remember sort of the setup of the book of Job. Satan comes and, and he says to God, oh sure, Job worships you. You've given him everything. He's rich. He's got kids. Everything's fine. And God's like, well, do your best. Take that stuff away from him. So he does. He takes it all away. And in Job 2, uh, God says to Job, he says, speaking about Job, he says, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So God, yes, God gave Job or Satan. He gave Satan free reign over Job, but God doesn't mince words. He says, you know, that the sovereignty over Job's life is mine. And so we might think that that helps us, but only if we don't think about it too much. So we're still stuck in square one. Some writers focus on the type of census that David takes, that God had called for a certain type of census, and David went beyond what God called for. We can believe that. We certainly experience that in our own lives. God tells us, do this, and we're like, well, I'll do that and a little bit more. Or God says, you're allowed to do this, and we're like, but am I allowed to do this? And so it could be that God called for a certain census, but David, what the census that David wanted was a census of all of his military men. He wanted to know how big is our fighting force? How strong are we? Is it an egotistical thing? David wants to know at the end of his reign, hey, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Is it a fear thing? How, how is our army? How big is it? What, what could we, how, how can we stand against our enemies? How, what's our situation? Whatever it is, there's something that's out of sync between what God wants and what David wants. What God desires and what David desires are not in sync, and that's where the problem comes. And again, we get that. We understand that. When my desires are not in sync with God's desires, that is always when temptation and sin are going to come in. Because I want something that either I know God doesn't want or God just doesn't want that same thing. And so temptation comes in and sin comes in because I give in to those desires rather than saying, what I want more than this, God, is for you to be glorified. Isn't it weird that even Joab recognizes this isn't a good idea? Joab, who throughout most of 2 Samuel is really not a very good guy, he actually gives some pretty good counsel, or tries to, to David. He says, David, I mean, may God make your military a hundred times bigger before you die. What, why do you need to see it? What, why do you need to ask for this? But David's convinced this is what he wants. It is apparently an act of not trusting God. Again, whether it's for ego or for fear, David's trust is somewhere else. Some of you might remember, at least from reruns, the old sitcom, I Love Lucy. I mean, most of you here will only remember it from the reruns because it ran in the 50s, and you don't even know if the 50s actually existed. But uh, 
in that show. So Lucille Ball is actually the, the husband in the show, is actually her real husband, but he plays her husband in the show also, Ricky Ricardo. Do you remember, like, occasionally Lucy would get into some mischief or get into some trouble or some something would go crazy, and, and Ricky would come home, and he would say something to the effect of, hey, Lucy, you got some splaining to do. Do you remember this? Maybe you don't. There's memes everywhere. By the way, a little freebie for you. He never actually said that. It's just a meme. He said things very similar to it, like, splain it to me or splain this. But he never said, hey, Lucy, you got some splaining to do. That's just folklore. But what do you do? Uh, anyway, but that's the, I- the idea is still there. And sometimes I wonder if we are willing to worship God as long as God is some big Lucy in the sky. We act as though, I will worship you, God, but you got some splaining to do. Like, you got to explain this to me, and then I'll worship you. I remember uh, we, when we were younger and living in Raleigh, we had friends in a Bible study, and one woman mentioned that when she was a teenager, she was very happy to obey her parents as a teenager, but she just needed to know why. She just needed them to explain to her why, and once they explained it to her, she was more than happy to comply. If you are a teenager and you are hearing me, you think that sounds reasonable. That's not obeying. That's agreeing. See, when the Bible talks about submission and obedience, if the Bible wanted to say, as long as you agree, it would say that. As long as you can understand the thought process of your parents. Children, obey your parents as long as it seems reasonable. God never says that. It's interesting. If God wanted to say agree when he said submit, do you know what he would say? Agree. Look at that. See, there's a word. He could use the word. Use the word that means agree instead of the word that means submit. I think we approach God sometimes... And especially with passages like this, it's like, will someone explain it? Why was God angry? I need to see that it's reasonable that God was angry before I can accept this. The Lord's anger was directed first against Israel, and we are never told why. And he brings about the punishment or correction of Israel through David's sin. When you and I approach God and say, well, God, can never, God never has a right to be angry unless he can explain it to me first. What we're saying is, well, wait a minute. I mean, he's sort of God. He's little G God. I'm big G God. As long as God can explain himself to me, he can stay in that seat. But if he can't explain himself to me, I'm going to have to take that seat back. It's not really God we're worshiping. It's ourselves. It's me. I'm God. You can be God. You can play God as long as you explain yourself to me first. We just, we want this small, manageable God. Sort of like the, like when you, I don't know if they still do. I don't even know if people still take taxis. But when you used to, people used to take taxis. We're talking about Lucy, we may as well talk about taxis. So uh, you'd get in a taxi and there'd be this little painted 
Jesus on the dashboard, this little statue. Little painted Jesus on the dashboard. Have you seen these? Maybe not in taxis, but maybe in other places. We want a little painted Jesus because we really think the bottom line is we have little painted sin. I want a nice, manageable God because I think I have nice, manageable sin. And I think that's really all I need. But also, we want a God that's controllable because we're afraid of a God who's not controllable. We're a little worried about a God who's completely mysterious. Because can you really trust a God who's mysterious and uncontrollable to be merciful and compassionate? We want Lucy in the sky because we're afraid what we have is a gorilla God. I love how in verse 10, and this I think is key to why this becomes the last chapter in David's, in the life of David. I love that David repents without a prophet confronting him, without seeing a consequence of what he's done wrong. Nothing has gone wrong yet, and David sees his sin. David repents before he's confronted. He repents before he experiences consequences. I won't say he's moved by his own heart, but David is now moved by the Spirit of God to repent. Not moved by being caught, not moved by being punished, moved by his heart. A lot of folks ask me uh, when, you know, as their kids get older, hey, you know, my kids are starting to ask questions. When is it right to start talking about, you know, joining the church or about, you know, taking communion? When do I, when do I, how do I know when my kids are actually, it's not just because I'm taking them to church, but it's actually their faith is what's starting to like to blossom here. And I often will tell folks that one thing that I'll say to look for is, do they confess their sin or repent to you or even to others without being caught? Like, do they recognize the sinfulness of sin without someone else pointing it out to them? Does your child cry over their sin Or do they cry over their punishment? Do you hate giving in? Or do you hate getting caught? By the way, I say these things to kids so that you don't feel like I'm saying it to you. So that you will hear it more easily. What keeps you from sinning? Is it just the fear of getting caught? Does the love of God for you and you for God ever stop you from sinning or ever cause you to repent? Or does it have to be that you got caught? Does it have to be that you're being punished? Is that what brings about repentance? When you've sinned is the only thing that gets you to repent, the fact that someone saw you or found out. David's 
heart struck him, the Bible says. David's heart struck him. I have sinned greatly. I Please take away my iniquity. Like he knows he is guilty. He, he stays guilty unless God removes it. Take away my iniquity. I have acted foolishly. Repentance has everything to do with what we need and nothing to do with what we deserve. You don't deserve to be forgiven just because you're sorry. Repentance does not earn forgiveness. Repentance recognizes I don't deserve anything. I've been foolish. I've been sinful. I need to be washed clean. And if you won't, I am in a world of trouble. David's not crying out because he thinks that in crying out, God owes him then forgiveness. He's crying out because he knows he's desperate for forgiveness. He recognizes the sinfulness of his sin and knows that he needs to be forgiven. And so the Lord sends Gad to speak to David and offer three options. Some of your Bibles say three years. Others point out that it may be seven years, seven years of famine, three months of an enemy attacking, or three days of pestilence. And he says, you choose. We'll do one of those. And isn't it amazing, David's response? David says, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let us fall into the hands of man. Because, and like the follow-on is because, because men are awful at showing mercy. I would rather trust myself to God because I know that God is at times merciful than to man. So that's crazy then. This little passage in the middle, it's laid out like this then. David repents and receives instruction from Gad. And then David trusts in God's mercy. And then God's wrath over sin is poured out. But then David sees and experiences God's mercy. And then David repents and receives instruction from Gad. I mean, it's just this whole thing is like repentance, ask for mercy. There's still punishment. See mercy, repentance. It's this great picture. But like when we look at it and we think like, but the center is wrath. But the wrath is is on a mercy sandwich. It's in a mercy wrap. It's wrath that it begins and ends with mercy. David says, I'm going to trust in God's mercy. And then he actually sees God's mercy because the pestilence isn't over. The angel of death gets to this threshing floor and God says, stop. He says, God relents. God changes his mind just because of who God is. David was right to entrust himself to God because God is always merciful. David trusts that the God who requires sin to be paid for is the God who is merciful. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the holy God who is worthy of perfect righteousness and perfect obedience is merciful? 
that it's who he is. It's, it's essential to his being God. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and mercy. How many of you remember the story uh, from 1996, uh, the, uh, the zoo in Illinois outside of Chicago? Three-year-old uh, little boy falls into the gorilla pit. Anyone remember this? Three-year-old boy falls into the gorilla pit. This gorilla comes over, scoops his boy up. Everyone's like, oh, my goodness. Cuddles this boy, who's unconscious from the fall, carries the boy over to a doorway, an access door, and lays him down at the doorway so that rescuers can just come in, grab him, and leave. It's an amazing, you can, it's still on YouTube. Like, you can find it. So 1996, Gorilla Saves Boy. You can, you can watch it. It's crazy. And like, he's, she's, she's so gentle and so loving. Do you know what didn't happen the next day? Nobody hired that gorilla as a nanny. Nobody petitioned for the wall to be removed. Why? Because we know that the gentleness was a fluke. It's not the norm. That's not what you can expect. Nine times out of a ten, throw your toddler into the gorilla pit, you're saying goodbye to your toddler. But this time, there was kindness from a gorilla of all things. There was gentleness from a gorilla of all things. When you Google it today, because I know you will, probably don't watch the one that says 2016. Because it was a different gorilla and a different outcome. And really what we expect from gorillas. And if we were even a little honest today, what we expect from God. We think his mercy is a fluke. Nine times out of ten, he hates you. Or at the very least, he is so disappointed in you. That is not God. He is not Lucy in the sky, but he is not a gorilla God. He is compassionate, he is tender, he is gentle. A bruised reed won't even break. A smoldering wick will not be snuffed out. David wonders, maybe God will be merciful. And then God is merciful. Again, not because David deserves it, even for his wondering, but because David needs it. He needs God's mercy. God loves his children, and so he stops the angel. He relents. And David is given again an opportunity to seek God's mercy in verse 17. And isn't it beautiful how David seeks God's mercy not for himself? He's not thinking about himself now. 
Another picture of why would you end with this story? Look at David. He says, listen, I've sinned. I know I've sinned. But these people, God, these people, they're just sheep. They're innocent. Pour your wrath on me and my household. Let the people go. His heart is in the right place. It's a beautiful picture. He's wrong, (laughs) but his heart is wonderful. His foundation is shaky because we learned the foundation, didn't we, in in verse 1. The Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. Israel had sinned. David's wrong. They're not innocent sheep. They're guilty sheep. But the beauty of like, no, let me take it, God. Let them alone. The truth is, though, David, neither David nor the people are innocent. And their sin, both of them, their sins must be atoned for. There must be a sacrifice of atonement. There must be a burnt offering. David uh, cries out for mercy and again receives instruction. Head up to that mountain. Go straight toward the angel of death. Go to the God you fear and offer your sacrifices. Again, the, the plague is just on pause. You have to understand this. God has stayed the angel, but it doesn't end until the sacrifice. God doesn't turn it off and go back. The, the wrath of God is not satisfied until the sacrifice is made. He pauses it to give opportunity for the sacrifice, but the sacrifice is necessary for the appeasement. There's, the blood sacrifice is necessary. It's not just that David, oh, David feels sorry, and so God now forgives him. Yes, David feels sorry. He ought to feel sorry. And now sin has to be atoned for. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, as all throughout the book of Leviticus were told, throughout the various descriptions of sacrifice, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The burnt offering is an offering of petition. It's an offering that seeks the Lord. It's it's the offering that's associated associated most with with confessing of sin, with the the offering of atonement. The burnt offering is is a recognition that this is what I deserve. The peace offering, interestingly, is a, an offering of celebration. The peace offering is a, a communion meal. Like it's, it's given to the Lord and then the priests eat it and then you even get to eat some of it. It's this communion meal. It's a celebration that you have peace with God, that peace has been restored. You've been forgiven. Isn't it amazing that David offers both the burnt offering and the peace offering at the same time? So certain is David at the mercy of God that he is able to come and offer his offering for atonement and his offering of peace, celebrating that God has received his offering of atonement all at the same time. That's how much he trusts that God is Merciful. It's not a fluke. It's who he is. 
When he calls you to himself, it's because he intends to show mercy. When God tells you to confess your sin, it's because he's planning on forgiving you. He has already sent his son. We come. It's good for us before communion to, to confess our sins. It's good for us to examine our hearts. And it's good for us to then celebrate communion. To come forward and celebrate the peace we have with God through Christ. It is a great, great chapter then to end with. Because it's a reminder. Like, I don't know if, like, almost every book of the Bible ends a little disappointingly. Other than Revelation. Like, every book of the Bible ends with like, oh, well then what, what happens next? Okay, so like they're living in Egypt for crying out loud. How is this going to work out? And then the very next chapter in the very first, the second book of the Bible says, okay, so they were slaves then for 400 years, so that did not go well. And you're like, what? And then, every, but every book, it kind of ends with this, well, okay. I mean, I feel like the book stopped rather than ended. You know, this is good for us to see this, that like, David wasn't the guy. In fact, David needed the guy. David needs the guy as badly as the rest of the Israelites need the guy. David needs a sacrifice that will satisfy the wrath of God as much as all the people need. It's a beautiful reminder that that David comes and he won't even make the sacrifice without paying for it. You know, Arana wants to just give it to him, like, here, just take it. And he says, no, I can't do that. I will not make a sacrifice to the Lord that doesn't cost me anything. I will not have my sins paid for with a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Again, great heart, faulty foundation. I mean, certainly, certainly we ought to have that vision, that view of like, listen, I'm not going to have someone else pay for my sin. I can't have you pay for my sin. But isn't that the gospel? David thinks, listen, I'll make the sacrifice because the people are innocent. He's wrong. The people aren't innocent. And then here comes Christ, David's son, yet David's Lord. And he says, I'll make the sacrifice because the people are guilty. And I'll pay the price that they can't pay. And then just to like blow your mind. So threshing floors are always up on a raised place. Except when Gideon's threshing and he's doing it down in a pit. And that's how you know he's a coward. But anyway, uh, they're always up on this raised elevation, like on a mount, a hill, something. And it's so that when you're threshing, all the bad stuff blows away. The heavy wheat and barley falls straight to the ground. And so that's where you go. So there's this threshing floor. It's near Jerusalem. In fact, from the walls of Jerusalem, you can see the threshing floor. Because David can see, oh, the angel has stopped there. And God says, go over to that mountain and make this sacrifice. And so he goes over to this, this mountain mountain, this hill really, but years ago, maybe a thousand years ago, that hill was called Mount Moriah. That threshing floor hill was called Mount Moriah that then got renamed by a group of people that called it the mountain of the Lord will provide because it's where the Lord provided a ram caught in the thicket for the burnt offering that he had demanded from Abraham. 
and that mount. In Chronicles, we're told he didn't just buy the threshing floor. He didn't just buy the oxen. He bought the entire farmland right there. And it became the temple mount. It was the land he gave to Solomon to build the temple where the sacrifices would be made year after year until that one sacrifice was made, not on the mount, but outside the wall. Another altar was raised and the Son of God, the Lamb of God, was slain for the full atonement of God's wrath. And so it's a beautiful way to end 2 Samuel, to look back to the promise made even to Abraham at that mountain and look forward to the promise fulfilled through Christ at that mountain and to see the forgiveness that comes from a God who delights to forgive, not in a flukish way, but anyone and everyone who calls on his name will be saved. Let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy that is not odd and weird and fluky. But it is simply who you are. And while there are certainly times that we, God, uh, hide behind your mercy to just ignore our sin, often we just assume that you are not normally merciful. And yet, how can we look at the cross? How can we come to this table and not realize that you are merciful? It is who you are. It is why you sent your Son. God, would you just give us faith to trust you to believe you, that you have paid the cost for our atonement through your Son. Give us boldness to come to you in confession and boldness to live for you in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.